Hi, I'm Roger Sollenberger, Communications Manager at 3DR. Welcome back to the Life After Gravity podcast. This week we'll be talking about drones and journalism with a widely regarded expert on the subject, Matt Waite, Professor of Journalism at the University of Nebraska and founder of the world's first drone journalism lab. Also the world's first drone journalism lab to receive a cease and desist order from the FAA. Matt won a Pulitzer Prize for his work with PolitiFact.com, the first Pulitzer given to a website. We'll talk about how drones are about to change the media, and in turn, how the chaotic drone reporting by the media has shaped our perception of drones. The weird and paradoxical loopholes when it comes to selling video to the news, why an aerial perspective has so much impact on our memory, and the power that a reporter would have with just a single drone in a backpack. I mean, could you talk, I guess, generally first about what is so compelling from a media outlet, but also you as a, as a journalist, what is so compelling about uh, having personal drone, having uh, aerial footage or immediate access to the air? Why is that content so uh, in such high demand on both sides? Sure. It's uh, at the very first, I mean, a very obvious thing is it's a unique perspective on something. It's not a perspective you get from the ground. It's a new look. Um, the video is generally in motion, so it conveys space and size and all of that. More compelling and sometimes less easy to see is that um, the UAV often provides uh, context and will provide uh, scale. The I, where I think where I think drones have their most uh, useful place in journalism is going to be explaining stories of large spatial extent. Uh, I, I was a journalist in Florida uh, for about 10 years and, and was there during the 2004 and 2005 hurricane seasons that were, that were historically bad and there were a number of name storms that went through there. Uh, I covered five of them myself. That, what, what year is it? Uh, 2004 and 2005. Yeah. So Charlie, Francis, Gene, Ivan, those are, those are 2004 storms. I'm trying to remember the 05 ones. I think Katrina was the 05, wasn't it? Yep. Yeah. 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 It was. Yeah. So when you're a reporter and you're on the ground and your job is trying to convey some sense of the scale of the disaster and, and, the, and the, how bad it is and what people are going through, it's extremely difficult on the ground. After a while, you know, that block that way is, is all destroyed real good, and that one up that way is all destroyed real good, and that one over there is destroyed real good, and which which way do I go, and, and how far does this extend, and um, just wrapping your head around being able to, you know, to describe the extent of it is really, really hard. Well, if you could get a, if you could get a camera in the air even 200 feet, that 15 seconds of video is gonna do a heck of a lot more to explain how far and wide and terrible this storm is than, you know, my poor ability to explain it in words. Um, and that's, that's, I think right there is, is journalistically the most interesting thing is, is being able to describe and, and detail things that are hard to describe in detail because they're so large. Yeah. And uh, you alluded to Katrina and what are the images, right? From control, it's the helicopters. It's the the man on top of his, yep. the family on top of their roof, you know, surrounded yep. by water. I had a, a friend who was in the Peace Corps at that time, and he was in Kenya, uh, living with a Maasai, and uh, Katrina struck, and he made everybody come into the village to watch the one TV because he wanted to show them 
how black people were treated in America because they didn't believe him. And so he brought them all into this bar, the one TV in town. They all watched it. And those it was those helicopter shots. He was telling me it's like above that, like they were isolated. They were just stranded. And, you know, and they're like, oh, I I get it. And it was that aerial perspective. It was it was not just a sense of disaster, but the sense of isolation and context. And, you know, that shot can give you that in a way that you would never be able to see. You'd never be able to, you know, really understand. Could you paint some scenes or or stories where you've seen drones breaking the news or used in coverage that have been to you particularly momentous? You know, thinking about that Katrina aerial perspective. The one that I always date myself on, that people ask me all, that that I should say, uh, people of a certain age ask me about, is the O.J. Simpson chase through Southern California. People ask me all the time, well, could you could you have flown along the freeway and, and looked into the white Bronco? And I'm like, no, no, really couldn't have. Uh, and not only that, you know, until there are, you know, exponential leaps in battery power, following a car chase on the L.A. freeway is, is going to be a very short endeavor. Um, so, especially especially at the pace they were going, right? Yeah, exactly. Um so yeah, natural disasters. Uh, there was some. There was some really interesting video that uh, a certain competitor of yours that I won't name on a podcast uh, of your company. Um, they flew one into an active volcano in Iceland, mm-hmm. and I thought that was fascinating. That was that was really compelling watching. Um, the drone got melted too. It though. did. It yeah. melted completely. Which. You know, if you've got budget, uh, you know, hey, chalk one up for the, you know, it's going to take one for the team. But, uh, yeah, that was that was really wild. Solo wouldn't have melted, by the way. Really? It's impervious to volcanoes. <laughs> and it's not on your marketing materials. I'm surprised. Yeah. Uh, it's a, it should, yeah, it's it a, should be. Well, it's a, sort of, it's a marginal, uh, marginal use case. Tall yeah. buildings, a single bound, that kind of thing. Yeah. Honestly, where I'm... Where I really wish we would see a lot more is the the drought in California. There is so much landscape change going on because of that that terrible and and seemingly intractable drought. That that's the kind of thing that that you really can't wrap your head around how bad it is until you see it from the air, until you get a perspective on and it. And you see boats, you know, twenty feet out of the water. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Uh, I have seen those pictures, and they're they're pretty remarkable. There's I also yeah. saw some of the Dead Sea recently. There was a, did you see that reel? Yeah, yeah, the Dead Sea is apparently shrinking dramatically, and yeah, it looks like a dolly. Dozens thing, and dozens and know? dozens of like miles of of what used to be underwater is now exposed, and there are these old rotting ships there, and yeah, it's, that's unbelievable. It's it's those kind of things around the world that I think you know could be. Could be really revealed to people if there was just a uh, a better way to get in the air and, and do that kind of thing. That I think is where the the real value is going to be. I mean, the the, the last one, the, the more crass one that I that I go to because it's the it's the winning argument, but it's not the one that a lot of journalists want to hear is cost. These devices are not that expensive, and your your expenses are almost you know ninety nine percent upfront. You buy a you buy a, a a good platform. You buy a bunch of extra batteries to to keep you in the air for a while. Um, good cameras, all the kit that you need to go out and, and do something. Your next flight is essentially free. The 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 marginal cost to keep flying is almost zero. Mm-hmm. So, 
that first shot that you get is, you know, yeah, there's a lot of upfront cost to it, but the one after that and the one after that and the one after that and the one after that, there's no additional cost to it. If you want to do a manned aircraft, you're talking about yeah. $1,500 an hour to rent a helicopter. I saw a memo. I think I may have linked to it off of your your drone journalism blog mm-hmm. that said, and I'm really curious about this, and the, there's a memo about commercial use of aerial footage by news media. And yes. so you can't get it yourself. If you're a local NBC affiliate, you know, you not without a three three three. Without a three three three, you can't go up and get it. If you are a uh, hobbyist, however, and you're like, oh, I want to get a good look at, you know, is it the Platte? Is that the river that's there? Yeah, yeah I want to see the Platte. And then, oh, there's this fire over here. I'm going to fly over here and take a look. And I'll capture this. And I'm like, oh, this would be great for the news when they're talking about this story. You can give it to. Is this correct? You can give it to the affiliate and they can use it as long as they don't pay for it. Is that, that's correct so, so far, right? Yeah, actually it's way weirder than that. Um, if and he can, you, you can get paid for it if you don't. You can get paid for yeah, it. Yeah, you can now. get paid for it. You so can get can, paid for it so long as you didn't go out of your attention, way. Yeah. I didn't you, mean to. Yes. If you I was were in the right time at the area and news happened to occur underneath you, you're okay. Yeah. If you got in the car and drove 10 miles to get video of this news event, now you're acting as a commercial operator and it's not okay. Yeah, and now we're into uh, night nightcrawler territory. Right. right? J- exactly. J- so now now it's not okay. It's yeah. it, it is it's it's that distinction of if you're flying and you just happen to capture news, you can sell it and what it's a okay. weird Yeah, what a weird loophole. So would the news entity then, they're allowed to pay you for it? I mean, is, is it the bottleneck is open both ways? Correct. And, and the FAA said explicitly they will not go after news organizations publishing drone video or drone photos. That is such a weird loophole. Well, that one is constitutionally protected. Um, can you explain you that? Uh, the government can't go after news organizations for publishing. There's um, there's a Supreme Court decision. Oh, and I just it just dropped out of my head. Where if a news organization is given information, even in even information that was illegally obtained, so long as they were not a party to the crime of obtaining that information, they can publish it without fear of the government going after them. So a Drone hobbyists can go out and actually violate FAA regulations, getting video, give that video to a news organization or sell that video to a news organization. The news organization can run it and not have to worry about the FAA coming after them. I can see that First Amendment protection there. Yeah. Yeah. The uh, the operator, on the other hand, has got to worry because that's who the FAA is going to go after. And that's traditionally who they have authority over is, is the airmen in the airspace. Yeah. So the incentive then is for uh, outlets to employ right uh, a net of citizen. It does create a very perverse set of incentives. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting, and and, and not not in the interest of safety either. No, yeah. no, and that, and that really worries me. Do you see this opening up um, a pretty big new can of ethical concerns for journalists? Um, yes and no. Um. It's a new phase in an old argument. It's not really that much different than a you know the smoking gun oh. memo that says that the mayor was doing terrible things to this person and yes. blah blah blah. It, it it's just it's a different dimension. It's a different idea. It's a different technology, but it's the same basic questions. Um, 
that said, you know, there's there's some freshness and some beauty and some some kind of uh, you know wow factor to video from UAB that I think a lot of news organizations are really hard pressed to let go on by, and they're not doing their kind of due diligence of was this illegally obtained and, and is there a compelling public interest to it and is that going to outweigh the the crime that occurred to to get it? I don't I don't think they're doing a real serious job of answering that question. What about um, also the immediacy of it? I mean, uh, not to plug our company, but you know, with Solo, you can unpack it in a minute, and you're up in the air. Yep. Uh, and there's something that's for a journalist, I think, would be super compelling about that, but also raises a bunch of other questions. You're smiling, so. So, when I first started this back in 2011, I talked to a lot of people, and I said, you know, someday. Journalists are going to be able to go to a scene of a news story, and in their backpack, they're going to pull out uh, a UAV, and it's going to go off into the air. And they may even have like a pre-programmed flight pattern in their phone, and they're just going to hit a button. It's just going to take off. It's going to go straight in the air, 100 feet. It's going to point in the direction they want it to point. Turn the camera on, do their thing, and then come right back down. And they're going to pull the memory card out and do something on a laptop and send it off back to the back to their uh, their. Um, their central office, and, and it'll be on the internet, and everybody will see it. It'll be way to go. I mean, this sort of pre-periscope, uh, uh, you know, live streaming from your smartphone kind of idea. But um, it was the idea of that you had a backpack and you could just bust it out. So when I saw 3DR, I actually literally created a backpack to carry those around, and I'm like, yes, yeah. And we and we've also we also now. created that that flight pattern you're talking about. I mean, if you're yes. Look at the Mexican restaurant. You have Orbit, right? And it goes right yep. around there. That's Canada. been around since the RG Pilot days. So, I mean, that, we uh, are. We yeah, are. I mean, that's, that's been around for a while. Yeah. So, yeah. But, yeah, I mean, the, the software that you've got now is substantially better. Um, but, um, yeah, you know, literally the backpack. It's like, now if we could just get federal aviation rules that would even allow yeah, this. Let us, use, let, let us use it. About, I mean, since we're talking about tech, like, what, what technology you know, aside, you know, is particularly compelling about uh, some of the drones that you're seeing today and what, for journalism, would, what would be better? What, what's an ideal platform for, for you or for people that um, you know working? Well, I, I think the ideal platform for me is going to be very different from the ideal platform from a newsroom. I'm going to be, I'm going to be the one like mucking around in the docks looking for the, 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 the way out there type stuff. I'm going to be tweaking settings. I'm going to be the one violating the terms of service and, and things like that. Like that's, that's what I do. So um, open something hackable and yes, open. I'm, and, I'm, yeah. I'm looking to, to push things to their, their limit. I'm looking to outgrow things in a hurry and want to move on to the next step. So I think, uh, you know, extensible, hackable, open, um, are very desirable characters. I'm looking for, uh, easy to fly, um, because they are, if you are flying, you know, manually, you're flying with human being in control. There are a lot of ways you can get into a bunch of trouble and end up smacking us out of a building or hitting a tree or doing something you don't want to do. And, yeah. and a lot of that's practice and time and training and things like that. But for journalists and for journalism, the number of people that you're going to have, they're going to get good, legitimate, time-consuming training to be able to fly these is going to be fairly limited. So I would envision a platform that had like pre-configured uh, automated flight 
profiles um, where a person could sit with a laptop and they could say, okay, um, I want you to go straight up, 100 feet in the air, move out laterally to the north, 150 feet, uh, and orbit a spot there, and then come back, uh, and then just push a button and it happens, is probably going to be ideal. Yeah, so uh, drawing waypoints, drawing flight paths on a tablet, yeah. you know, uh, executing Where it gets, a... Where I get I mean, that's that's clearly possible now. Where I where I get worried is um, the kind of redundancy and emergency procedures on those things because I can foresee a day where the person taking the UV out into the into the into the field and then this is not just journalism. This is all all different industries. But the person taking the um, thing out into the field is not going to be you know a, a long time skilled pilot, mm -hmm. um, and so their ability to deal with emergency situations is going to be fairly limited. And so when we get to a day where, where the person can control this from a laptop or the device itself is, is smarter about what to do about its surroundings, um, that I think is, is the day we're going to get there. And, and, and what I mean by smart about its surroundings, we're, we're probably going to have to have some kind of air traffic control system that comes along. It's going to be at lower altitudes. So if there is a low-flying helicopter in the air, these devices become aware of it and just get themselves out of the way. Um, the uh, ability for these devices to recognize mechanical failures and, and deploy some kind of, um, you know, if it, it's just not just fly back immediately, uh, deploy some kind of a resting parachute to keep it, from, you know, pitching down at, at yeah. terminal velocity into the ground or into somebody. Um, you know, shut off the props, turn off the battery, and deploy a parachute and fall to the ground gently. Um, but then you start talking about you know ease of use and uh, and safety. You know, um, I think ironically, as as they get easier to use, people the people using them become um, less safe themselves, yeah. right? Either because they don't have the experience and they think they can do it, or because they rely on oh this this is easy. They rely on the autonomy or something, and and they can feel they can turn their their mind off so you know i think that autonomy actually in software can rise up to take take control of more of the aircraft as they've been doing with with man flight too i mean yeah. like, 90 percent of flight of your flight time on a commercial airline is actually just a robot you yeah it take off and landing is the only part that the pilot actually takes part in yeah um, it's, but you uh, know and so like yeah the the software can make it can make it safer yeah. taking oh, no, no. less of less of that responsibility off of off of the user there's a whole area that if you're when you get your man pilot's license, you got to study. It's it's all about um, it's it's crew management and and decision making oh, yeah. management in the air in the aircraft. And there's a whole section of things that people think that usually lead to problems. And a lot of it is like invulnerability, like you just can't be harmed, and yes. you have to recognize when you have this kind of swashbuckling sense. Of, of invulnerability and, and what to do about it. And, and literally there are questions on this, on this FAA knowledge test. It's like, what is the antidote to invulnerability? And the answer is, it can happen to me. And these are, the, these are the kinds of things that if you're thinking ahead to the day when the FAA has a knowledge test for UAS pilots to become certified to use them uh, as, as it is under the notice of proposed rulemaking that filed in February, 
those are the kind of questions you're going to get asked. You're going to get asked. It, yeah. It's going to be how to combat feelings of I don't have to follow the rules. I'm invulnerable. Uh, I can do this. I'm 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 a better pilot than than this and, and, and things like that. It's you're going to see those come up again because it's it's it, it really is. It's it's surprisingly similar. Now that you say this, it's surprisingly similar on the ground and in the air. Yeah. That the more skilled you get, the more bold you become, and the easier it is to to lead yourself into situations where bad stuff's going to happen. Yeah. Just, oh, I don't have to think oh. that anymore. I, you know, I'm an expert. If we could go um, to the other side of the coin here with drones and the media, and that you know drones get the story, but they at least right now they also are the story. And I remember CNN got a uh, an exemption from the FAA to film at Selma with yes. the uh, yeah the 50th anniversary the walk across the bridge yes and they flew there and you know they were honoring the men and women who uh, demonstrated and John Stewart when he right and John Stewart yeah one. called them on this and they kept calling CNN kept calling attention to the drone you know again and again. It, the drone was the news item, and it wasn't so much about this momentous um, anniversary. So the drone's on two sides, and I know that it's still sort of a novelty, but could you talk about how the media not only uses drones, but how they cover drones and what they're getting right, what they're getting wrong? Yeah, um, the the media coverage of drones, to be kind, is sort of chaotic. Um, it. It really ultimately depends on who it is and what it is, and, and kind of the kind of overall voice and tone of the of the organization. There are some journalists who are, who are covering the space and are doing a really good job and, and have a, a, a pretty wide eyed and, and and balanced perspective on it. That yeah, these devices are are going to be a, a, a big part of our future. They're going to have a big impact on the on the on the economy, but there are also some very large questions of safety and airspace regulation and who are some of those journalists that are doing things. a good job? Uh, Jack Nickus at the at the Wall Street Journal is one that comes to mind. Uh, Ars Technica is doing a fantastic job. Yeah, they're doing a good really job. Really poking holes yeah. in a lot of a lot of media narratives that are out there. Yeah, they, recently they've been on it. Yeah, there have uh, there are some folks at the wall at the Washington Post that are doing a good job. Um, there are some that are not. Um, CNN uh, is is doing such a for a company that is working so hard to get this technology. They're really working at their opposite purposes in their newsroom by some of their coverage. Um, they they are hell bent on turning everything into a terrorism story. And so this past weekend, there were there were three sightings. Planes coming into JFK had spotted them, uh, UAS flying in the area. And some of them were flying at flight levels that they shouldn't have been. Just period, end of story. Uh, and CNN wanted to turn that into, uh, you know, our terrorists trying to bring down planes at JFK. We talked to a alleged law enforcement authority who speculates wildly without any evidence at all. And it's it's... That just that happens. It happens all too much. Um, on the local level, 
what you're generally getting is somebody who was handed a story that day and knows absolutely nothing about it. And you sort of get what you get. Um, mm -hmm. They might do a reasonably decent job of, of trying to understand what the rules are and, and what the situation is, or they might have a really wrong impression. It just really depends on who it is and what day it is and how much time they have and all of that. So, yeah, I have occasionally called up reporters after stories have run and, and said, okay, here's, here's what you got wrong. Uh, and here's where you went, where you went sideways. Um, if I wasn't studying for this dang test so much, there's a couple of things that I probably would have written, which is essentially, you know, how can you determine if some video that was shot in your community was obtained legally or not, uh, or, you know, was, was done in, in, in violation of FAA regulations? Because uh, it's not, once you know the kind of steps to check, it's not that hard. I get asked that all the time. Was this legal or not? If you follow me on Twitter, you'll see I'll get this question four or five times, you know, sometimes four times a week, sometimes four or five times a month. I, I, honestly, I think in a lot of ways, uh, what's going on in a lot of media coverage is no different than what's going on in the general public. There's a lot of confusion about, are these devices aircraft? Are they federally regulated? How are they federally regulated? What's allowed? What isn't? Who, who has to do what to follow which rules? Where can you fly? Where can't you fly? Um, can you shoot them? Can you not shoot them? That's the, that's the latest one. Not. And that's, yeah. One, I would just say don't do that because if you miss, now you put bullets in the air that have to come down somewhere. So whether or not you're legally able to, let's just not be firing weapons in the air. But that also opens this really interesting question about whether or not if, if the FAA considers these to be aircraft and then the NTSB in a, in a court ruling said absolutely they're yeah. aircraft, they should be regulated as such, that means it is a federal felony to shoot, to shoot one. at it. Yeah. It's a 10 year prison sentence in a federal facility if you shoot one. Uh, and the FAA is kind of like, eh, we're not going to do anything about this. And, and there are people who are really upset about that. So, you know, yeah, it's a cake and eat, cake and eat it. You know, scenario, right? it's a great reflection of, of society as a whole, and, and our society as a whole right now is just sort of confused as to about what we should be doing and what we can do. Yeah, and do you feel the media is uh, helping mostly right now, or uh, further muddling? Yeah, it really depends on the day. Yeah. It really depends on the day. Um, some days it helps, some days it hurts. Honestly, um, I, I think these are going to be a big enough deal and there are enough industries involved that uh, the media could turn full blast anti-drone. It would affect things, but not permanently. And Technology is too powerful. They're, I mean, the, the economics of it. So, yeah, economics, the, the use cases. Too, just the, many, many industries are pushing so hard to get them. Yeah, the sheer it's size cool. is, is just un, it's an unstoppable yeah. story. It's just, not, it's just not a way to derail this train, though. What, um, what, should we, what should we call them? I have this argument about the word drone. Go ahead. And that is, I'm pretty sure you're doing an audio podcast, but in yeah. my hand right now is a little quadcopter that is smaller than the palm of my hand. A nanocopter. It's it looks like it's black and white, and it does look yep. like an Oreo cookie. Yep, it is. It's it's called a teeny drone, and uh, I, I think this actually is smaller than a nano drone. It's like a femto drone or a pico drone or something like that or something like that. But this... To a bunch of people, they're like, oh, that's such a tiny little drone. And I'm like, okay, if this is a drone, yeah. 
and a $130 million global hawk that's the size of a 737 is a drone, then the word has no meaning anymore. Yeah, you're right. But are we going to get rid of a single syllable word in exchange for UAS or RPAS or something else? No, probably not. Also, and who's the, the there's a question about who's the we, you know? I mean, like yeah. that it's out. There's no, you know. Well, no. yeah, and I would define we as the general public that sort of gloms onto language and and standardizes it. Yeah. Um, you know, it's interesting for about the first 2 years that I had the drone journalism lab website, I would get a pissy email about once every 6 weeks from somebody going, "Well, you'd get a lot more respect if you didn't call them drones." Ah, whatever. It's fine. It's a word. Yeah. Um, I pull. I pull our our audience every now and again on this question, and it, it, the response is so split. And people are, are really opinionated. Um, yeah. Either way, they're they're incredibly opinionated about it. And and, and this is one place where I'm not. Uh, I I just sort of I change the word. I I use them all interchangeably, and I generally change them by the people that I'm talking to. So I was, uh, at an, I was at that same event you were at in Washington and was talking to, you know, lawyers and regulators and I used UAS the whole time. Um, if I'm talking to, uh, you know, a, a general audience, you know, some kind of community group that wanted me to come in and talk about them, I use the word drone because that's what they know. Um, I don't see a solution to this anytime soon. Um, I call them flying robots or flying cameras. Um, just to get out of that argument and just stop it. Yeah. You're, you're asking the wrong guy on this one. I sure. would, uh, I would, yeah. I would call him whatever. I mean, yeah. And sem- semantically, how then, you know, how do you differentiate between that little Oreo copter and, a? yeah, hawk? I mean, this is, this is actually a really hard problem because this is something that the FAA is going to have to deal with because they've been, leaving the RC community alone for so long, well, what's the difference between a remotely controlled aircraft and a drone? I mean, a lot of people will say, well, a remote controlled aircraft is, is there's no autopilot on board. Like there's no automated flight. There's no waypoint navigation. There's no GPS. It's just somebody with a receiver and it's giving commands and that's how it goes. And anything that has any sort of even limited, uh, you know, automatic capability. I don't want to use the word autonomous. I'm going to say automatic because it's not truly autonomous. It's not really making decisions on its own. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's doing things that you told it to do and you don't have to control it while it's doing it. Um, Any kind of limited automated capabilities, I think, makes it rise to some other level. So even a, even a limited like return to home function, you know, the, the controller goes dead, it will fly back to its original takeoff spot and land itself. I think that qualifies as UAS, but oh, that's an awful thin argument. It's, yeah. and it's, it's, the problem with that argument is there's no real good answer and every one of them are weak. There's not a bright shining line that just says, here it is. It's this. And, I mean, that what? is... That is the symptom, right, of of the arrival of this technology too. You know, not just in you know nomenclature, but in laws, right, and uh, commercial use, in uh, privacy questions. You know, like there are no lines. It seems you know this yeah. is just burst onto the scene, and and we, and it, it seems almost well, impossible that lines 
from where I am sitting, that lines will be drawn anytime soon. It's it's not that uh, it's not that there are no lines. It's that the lines that we have been trying to draw for literally centuries now, we never did get around to. We just sort of settled into a way of things working that was utterly dependent upon the technology of the time. Could you uh, elaborate on? Yeah. That if you, if you, so take an issue of, of, of private property. Going back to the Romans, the belief was that if you own the ground, you own the skies to the heavens above it. You own to the ends of the universe above your property, which is sort of hilarious in its impossibility. But um, that was the rule. You own the ground, you own the sky, period. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it was not until balloons came along uh, in the late 1600s and people started flying around in, in hot air balloons over Paris that lawyers in Europe went, oh, are we trespassing now every time we fly a balloon? And their answer was, maybe, maybe not. I don't know, sort of, but not really. And then... You'll pardon the pun, but things really took off when the Wright brothers came along and um, solid, Matt. Yeah, I know. Yeah, continue. It would sound weird if I said it any other way. It really right. would. Uh, I've actually tried, and you just sound stupid. <laughs> so when the when the Wright brothers came along and and airplanes started becoming like a big deal, and people started paying attention to it. Suddenly, this issue of aerial trespass started becoming really serious, but we never really got a good case. Um, it wasn't until World War II that we had a case that went to the Supreme Court, uh, Cosby v. U.S., uh, where the Army Air Corps was landing. They bought an airfield. They extended it right up to a farm in North Carolina, and they started landing planes on it. And so they're landing these huge piston-driven four-prop B-17 bombers 83 feet over this guy's farmhouse. And, and his chicken shacks and keeping them up all night long. Cause it's, you know, it's a war. So they're flying all hours of the day and night and affected their health. And their chickens were killing themselves. They sued the United States government saying you took the value of our, of our land by landing your planes over. Them. And it went all the way to the Supreme court and the Supreme court said, yes, by flying really low over a, uh, over a property, you have, destroyed their enjoyment of that property and made it uh, impossible for them to use it anymore. So it constitutes what's called a taking. Mm -hmm. And that sort of said, yeah, if you're flying really low over somebody's property and making a bunch of noise, then you're sort of, you're, you're intruding, you're trespassing, but mm -hmm. not really. And it never really said, okay, at 83 feet, you're trespassing. This is trespassing. Yeah. Not. Uh, and it never really said it has to be this level of noise or it or so many chickens have to. Yeah. You have to freak out. Themselves. So the, in, in that decision also, it kind of established the, the idea of the 500 foot ceiling of the national airspace that at 500 feet, that's, that's what planes kind of had to be at. And, and that's what we sort of glommed around that in a rural area, FAA regs say if you're, you know, out in a rural, non-congested area, you're not in the city, you have to be 500 feet away from from everything. Um, that's 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 the restriction. Well, now we've come along with something that's much smaller, much quieter, much lower to the ground, and all of these questions that have sort of but not really ever been answered in law 
have come to the forefront again. And we're having the exact same arguments that we had about aerial trespass and property rights and takings and what's low and what's a trespass and, uh, and, and all of that. We're having them all again. And, and we have got to come down and say, okay, here's what the airspace is. If you go below this altitude over somebody's private property, then that's a problem. And here's what it's called, you know, whether it's, you know, broaching restricted airspace or, or trespassing, whatever the hell we want to call it. I don't care what it is. Just set a standard. The, the issue of privacy all resolves, revolves around the idea of a reasonable expectation of privacy. And, and the thing that I always get from people is, oh, my God, you're going to take pictures of me in my backyard. You're going to go into my backyard and take pictures of me. I'm like, I can see your backyard already. I don't need a flying camera. I need Bing. I need Google. I need a local tax uh, assessor's website who has aerial imagery. I need the U.S. Geological Survey. I need NASA. All of those people can show me your backyard. I don't need a drone to do that. So, uh, you know, and I, the other thing I tell people is your backyard is boring. My backyard's boring. The most exciting thing I do in my backyard is garden and grill. If you want to watch either one of those with your drone, go right ahead. You know, if you really truly look at privacy law and, and our, our freakouts about privacy and technology, and you look at issues of aerial trespass, all of these arguments have happened before. They've all happened before. They were just all predicated around a different technology or manned aircraft and, and what it required to use manned aircraft. We're just going through it again, and we've managed to have a thriving uh, air commerce system in the United States for a very long time without anybody completely losing their minds. We will, we will do it again. It's going to take some time. It'll probably take a few lawsuits, and and we'll get there. It, it's just the way of the way of things in this country. Yeah, it's a it's a messy process. And long. Yeah, totally. Speaking of Matt, I think I've kept you for an hour and a half here. <laughs> I love but, talking about this stuff. So I know, man. It's great talking to you. You're animated and so knowledgeable. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. And take uh, care. Hope to talk to you soon again. Holler when this uh, goes online. I'll let you know, man. Really will. All right. Bye. Take care.